So, Professor Cameron, Deborah, if I may, uh, this whole business of the differences, the sex, well, it's not called sex, actually, in, in your circles, is it? No, we'd call it gender, being the social condition of being either a man or a woman, or these days increasingly possibly something in between or neither. But uh, yes, gender is the social thing, whereas sex is the biological thing. Right, and that may prove to be an interesting and fruitful thing to talk about a bit later. But firstly, I just wanted to suggest that it's not new to talk about men and women having different discourses, different ways of uh, expressing themselves, is it? No. On the contrary, it's been around for centuries and it's very uh, widespread culturally as well. Right. So not just in Britain, not just in English speaking, but in all the cultures. No. If you go to you know, a village in Papua New Guinea, you'll find that people have strong ideas about the different ways that men and women talk. Right. They're not always the same ideas, though. In fact, they can be very different from ours. And But is it, I suppose natural to associate it with the 1960s, this idea of what we now call gender politics, uh, uh, as the the rise of feminism began to include all kinds of subjects and uh, semiology and the way people dress, the way society treated the different genders, but also the way the different genders speak. Well, that is when um, the matter of the relationship between language and gender began to be studied in a serious and systematic way, yes, although it had always been of interest also to dialectologists who also had strong beliefs about, you know, which sex they were going to find using the most traditional forms of, of local dialect in various places. Because it's one of the most difficult fields because we can't stand outside our own gender in order to examine the nature of gender. So I would imagine that in the past... In particularly in academia before the 60s when it was largely dominated by men, that they would bring to their analysis an assumption about how they expect women to speak because of their assumptions of where they expect women to be within society. Yes. The one thing that you can say is universally true is that people's beliefs about the way women speak reflect their beliefs, are embodiments of their beliefs about women themselves. And that applies as much to you know academics as to anybody else. Yes. Um, and, and one of the ways, uh, as, as we know from Freud onwards, and we probably knew before Freud, of course, just through our common sense and observation, one of the ways society looks at it its, its keenest neuroses and its strongest contradictions is through comedy. And comedy has not always been um, what we would now call politically correct or enlightened about things. It has often reinforced stereotypes as well as playing with fears between genders and so on. Um, and in the old days, you know, even within my lifetime, uh, women were seen as po possibly nags or very, very talkative Gossipy. Yep, exactly. Nags, gossips. You can, you know, make collections of proverbs which make this um, this very clear. Things like, you know, the North Sea will sooner be wanting for water than a woman for a word. Or yes. uh, many women, many words, many geese, many turds. <laughs> I'm glad to see you smile here because one of the things I have to put is that there's a new, if you like, stereotype, and that is people in your job, your academic uh, field, gender politics, particularly the women in it, might well be characterized by people that, you know, and could even be listening now as, as naturally humorless. Um, there's this idea that you're all politically correct, that you don't, you know, there's a, the, how many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? That's not funny, is the mm -hmm. punchline, you know? <laughs> so that relies on the assumption that you're, you're in a humanist profession that can't see the joy and pleasure of sexual difference and you want us all to be relentlessly the same. Well, I certainly don't see the joy and pleasure of sexual difference as it's presently constructed, or not of all of it anyway. But um, 
Yes, I, I think the problem we're dealing with here is massive generalisation, isn't it? Yeah. Looking at every woman as a kind of microcosm of women in general. And one of the things I think that my field of research shows is that there are no such thing as women and men in general. There are only different kinds of women and of men. Can you map the difference in perception between the way women talk with the way they're treated. So in some societies where they are, their freedom is even more curtailed, mm-hmm. where, you know, where they are quite clearly, you know, have fewer rights, for example, um, are they portrayed as as shyer or are they still kind of kept down by being portrayed as nags and shrews? Is that... Well, both. They're, we tend to have um, a very contradictory picture there where, where both things are true. I and mean, women are kind of kept in line by these portrayals of, you know, give them, an, give them an inch and they'll nag you to death sort of thing. But at the same time, they'll be portrayed as, you know, very naturally modest and delicate. And that's why, for instance, you never see them speaking on a public platform. You know, it's their own choice. It's their own nature. And yet, you know, the minute a woman gets up and speaks on a public platform, she'll be denounced immediately as uh, a harlot. Mm. Now, it's interesting that um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that to, in as much as there is a huge intellectual divide, rather like the philosophical one between determinism and free will, there is a, a sort of equivalent one in cultural, social, linguistic studies, which is to do with the difference between what is biologically hardwired into us and what is culturally determined or culturally created. And in language, that has been a big issue in linguistics. And the field has been held in terms of pure linguistics, if one can call it that, by the Chomskyites who who feel that our language is, as it were, to some extent, hardwired. Um, but the, the point of gender politics seems to be that it's culturally determined. Is there a, dis, is, is there a dissociation there? Do you dissociate yourself from that side of linguistics? No, I'm, I believe both. I believe that the faculty that enables us to use um, grammatical language, the sort of language that all developmentally normal humans develop without being taught it, is indeed an innate faculty. But what is done with that faculty, the actual communicative mm. behaviour, no Chomskyan would hold that that is all as you put it, hardwired. I think we should remember that hardwired is a metaphor <laughs> since your brain is not hard and contains no wires. Uh, and um, I think it's a metaphor often used in a very, very imprecise and lazy way. Why, thank you. <laughs> I, was hoping, I was hoping for that sound <laughs> bitch slapping, if I can call it. I don't mean that in, in a gender-loaded way, though it's pretty hard to say it without being gender-loaded, I suppose. This is the, this is the, the field down which we go, of course, is that uh, so much of our discourse is... is, is, is is charged with with gender, you know, gender specific uh, insults, and, uh, and particularly when we uh, obviously are in, in in the world of acceptable language on mm-hmm. on, on radio. Things four. that we can't say on the yeah, radio. <laughs> they, they are not only gender specific; they're often you know sexually specific they as well. Are. Yeah. Um, and do you think that is something that can ever be overcome? I mean, is your do you have a mission? I mean, do you, are you trying to to cleanse language of of its of its gender loading or its, its gender unfairness? As a linguist, no, I'm trying to understand it and bring it to people's mm. attention. As a um, feminist activist, yes, I might be trying to cleanse language of certain things, but being a linguist makes you aware that this is a very uh, difficult job, which you can't sort of hope to do easily merely by getting up on your hind legs and shouting about it. Now, most of us might know the sort of anecdotal cliche of parents who try and bring up different gendered children um, as if there are, you know, no 
boundaries between what the expectations and yet somehow the boy always seems to play with the gun and the, and mm -hmm. the soldiers and the girl always plays with teapots and wears pink and mm -hmm. loves it so much. Uh, Parents hugely overestimate the degree of their own influence on their children. They like mm -hmm. to think that, you know, upbringing in the home and the role models of one's elders is the important thing. But certainly with language, it isn't. The biggest influence on you is your peers. That's why, you know, I, for example, you wouldn't know to listen to me. I was born in Scotland, in Glasgow, to Scottish parents. They emigrated. I talked like the peers I had, not like my parents continued to talk. So has anybody done any studies to that prove or disprove the idea that there is a different way that women express themselves. I mean, you know, the, the cliches, which I'm sure must exasperate you, that, say, a woman is more likely to talk about people and relationships and things that connect, and men are more likely to talk about work and jobs and uh, mm -hmm. or, or be more competitive or to talk off personal matters and talk about football and things like that. Is, is that just, again, just the culture as it now is? Or is there any way of separating it out and saying this seems to be something that is not cultural, but is to do in all societies, even matriarchal societies? Um, there is plenty of evidence that where it exists, it is cultural. And there is plenty of evidence that some of the things that are said most often are completely unsupported by the evidence. The thing you just said, for instance, about um, women talk more about people, relationships, mm. men talk more about, you know, gadgets or football or whatever. Um, most research seems to show that for most people, um, a huge amount of their talking time, the largest proportion of their talking time is taken up with talking about people, with doing what when women do it, we call gossip, talking about what people are up to, mm. who they're up to it with, whether it's a good thing or not, what it means. That plays a vital function for a social species like the human being. And therefore, it has been found that both sexes do it far more than they do anything else with talk. Yeah. There isn't really a difference. But, but what there may be a difference at is what is used to be known as the Australian dinner party, where people, you know, sat around boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. And by the time it came to pudding, the women had said, get out of the way and wanted to talk to other women and all the women are at one end of the table all the men at the other end of the table they may, they may both be talking about people to the same degree but they're talking to each other they're not talking across you know, the sexes across the genders they're, is that a, a noticeable it is a common finding, but I think that in our own society, it is something that has changed very considerably, that um, mixed sex friendship groups, peer groups, are much more ordinary and everyday than they used to be. And that reflects the very obvious fact that what you talk about tends to be quite closely related to your typical activities and interests. And in most societies, there is still a difference between men mm. and women in that respect. I wouldn't consider that a very profound insight into the essential <laughs> nature of the sexes. You know, what about the nature of anyone who's in between, as it were, either in between in their sexual desire, like me, say a gay person? It used to be a sort of ho-ho joke. Uh, that man has so many female friends, he must be gay. It's a sort of mm -hmm. rather counterintuitive to an alien who might think, hang on, surely, <laughs> if he likes women so much, how come you're saying that means he's gay? But, but that's a, sort of one of the peculiarities of, of our gender-ordered world. Um, and then, of course, we have now more than we've had in, in our history, certainly in the West. Um, we have transsexuals mm -hmm. who, uh, who have fully gendered re reassigned. Um, and they may have some insight into this as to whether they feel they need to learn to talk or want to talk differently. Because there are some transsexuals, of course, who want to be a cliché woman. 
Absolutely, yes. This is in. I think this is a case where the um, the minority and uh, the outliers, if you like, shed very great light on um, the more ordinary people who have never changed their gender identity or affiliation, because as you say, transgendered people tend to fall into two um, two groups. You can't totally generalize about this, but there are those who um, who want to subvert or, or flout normal expectations about gender. What they want to communicate is, you know, don't make assumptions. And so their style of, of talking, which for all of us reflects who we want to be seen as, as being, what kind of person um, we want to be taken as, their style of talking would be, would sort of mix it up would juxtapose incongruous elements, like someone who goes to a a buffet at a wedding and chooses, you know, sushi and potato salad. Whereas um, there is another group of of transgendered people who um, are actually much more invested in conventional gender identity than most women-born women or men-born men are. Um, For most of us, gender is a bit of a backdrop to other kinds of identity. You know, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm more like Anne Widdicombe than Katie Price, or whatever to name two rather different (laughs) exemplars of of femininity. Um, But, you know, for the transgendered person, it may be very important, more important than anything else, to be correctly identified with your chosen gender rather than the one you left behind. And therefore, those people may have, you know, the most stereotypical, most conventional buffet plate that you can possibly imagine, you know, poached salmon and with mayonnaise and salad or whatever. If you take it that language is one of the means that that we have most at our disposal for communicating nuances of, of meaning connected to the, the self, the person, um, it's very well adapted to that because language is an area of human behavior where very, very small differences, anything from how you pronounce a vowel to what you call the smallest room in your house, mm-hmm. can be um, heavily loaded with social meaning. So it's even better than clothes. You know, I can look at someone and think, right, that's a goth girl or that's a city banker. If the person talks to me, there's a whole lot more that I can tell about them. And clearly, you know, within the kind of queer movement, there has been an opening out of these possibilities and you are getting people performing gender in a great range of of different ways. Um, How far that is being – how far they really are subverting the kind of mainstream understanding of gender – is a moot point. Most people are not gender rebels or gender outlaws. It's like with clothes. that um, You may think that what you're doing is presenting a sort of inscrutable, subversive version of, of neither this nor that. But what you're understood as being is a, you know, a weirdo pervert. <laughs> so, you, you know, with language, what, the, what yeah. is understood is um, as important as what is done. You know, performances have audiences and mm. language is actually a very interactive form mm. of, of performance. And I might just end on that uh, issue of, of performance, actually. Um, I've heard uh, in a field that I sometimes dabble in, in comedy, um, I've heard women say, and um, it, there's always been this issue since I've been in the, uh, the field, there's, uh, there aren't enough females here, you know, so I do a show QI, for example, mm-hmm. and people say, we need more women on it, we need more women. So, well, there's Joe Brand and there's, you know, and we, Sandy Toxvig, and we list the ones who seem to be able to um, relax and have a good time and be funny. Mm-hmm. Um, in this particular format. Now, you may argue the format is invented by its producer, John Lloyd, who's a man, and I'm in it, and I'm a man, and therefore somehow... But is it 
simply, I've heard it literally said that there is something phallocentric about a joke, that a joke is a, is a penetrative thing. It's finished. It's, it's not open and yielding. It's not, if you like, vulvic. I know this is mm-hmm. sort of weird talk, but you're familiar with it, I'm sure. People, people have, yes, you, I'm, fami- you know, I'm familiar yeah. with it, but I wouldn't give it the time no, of day. I'm frankly. glad to hear it. I'm, it not, I'm not that kind of, um, you know, that's a fairly essentialist and peculiar yeah. sort of argument. I think there's a much simpler explanation. I mean, comedy is an example um, where a, a difference between men and women that actually is very historically persistent and very culturally widespread still um, makes a difference. And that is that women haven't had the same access to the, the public sphere of discourse that, uh, and that the, the conditions of women's lives don't encourage them to, if you like, not care what people think to the same degree as... I mean, I think the same is true for a lot of men. Not all Mm. men could make it in stand-up, obviously. Mm. Um, But you have to have, um, or or in political oratory or whatever it is. But over and over again, you get the same finding that when women go into a field that's that's public and that's historically dominated by men, uh, the Houses of Parliament is an example, the House of Commons, you find them feeling like interlopers who have to kind of go by the rules punctiliously and don't, whereas in fact, success is achieved by knowing when you can break the rules. And that, I think, is a historical burden that my, my sex carries and is the reason why it is still difficult to find people who can operate successfully in those, those public worlds. I mean, all the stuff about women of the more verbal sex kind of overlooks the fact that if you look at the history of the public sphere, you would conclude yes. exactly the opposite. So we- it's the private where you can be an Emily Dickinson or a Jane Austen in, in, mm-hmm. a, in, a, in, in a world in which, as it were, your extraordinary verbal skills are just committed to paper mm-hmm. alone in a room. And indeed, Jane Austen famously would even hide her manuscripts when mm-hmm. someone came in. And Emily Dickinson, too, it's essentially yes, it's, it's been incompatible with yeah. proper, respectable femininity. I mean, in, in as, as recently as 1850... Any woman who wanted to speak on a public platform, for instance, as a supporter of the the movement to abolish slavery, would be told, you know, a bunch of clergymen in, in around that time in America actually wrote an open letter to the newspapers saying, a woman who speaks in public is no better than a prostitute. She yes. is a prostitute. So you risk your reputation. Yeah, a and for, women and, uh, for women until recently, that was a, a massive risk to take. It really would ruin your life. And even now, the historical kind of traces of that linger on in feeling, you know, if people don't like me, if people think I'm a bit uppity, this is going to be sort of terrible for me. And yeah. I do think that that is still more of a constraint for women than it is for at least the men who do go on to be publicly successful. And so the, the men, ironically, the men who are most successful in the public sphere now tend to be the sorts of men who have all the old sort of masculine oratory skills, but are also felt to be in touch with their feminine side. Yes. 